0: Hi, and welcome back to Map the Maze. Last week we talked about what you need to know about intake, and this week I thought I would talk about what you need to know about the joint session. So I think the first thing to note is Is what is a joint session? (laughs) Um, After you have done your individual intake the family mediator will want to arrange for everybody to meet together. So that is the joint session. So that's essentially when you and the other party will meet with the mediator to start the mediation process. So at that first meeting what can you expect? Generally at that first meeting the mediator will work with each of you to prepare the process ahead, to outline what the next stages will be. Practice is different. My personal practice is that at that meeting, we all sign the agreement to mediate together. It's like a ritual that we all do this to acknowledge that we are all bound by the terms of that agreement to mediate. The agreement to mediate is important because in addition to things like fees and I guess the identity of the parties. What we're also doing typically in that agreement is setting out the terms under which we will all work together. And for most agreements to mediate, that includes things like this will be done in good faith, that people will disclose information that is necessary for people to be able to make an informed decision, that people will try and work constructively together, that they'll obey ground rules that if there is a concern around proceeding with mediation, noting that mediation is voluntary, anyone can terminate, even the mediator, that they will let the mediator know of those concerns. It It sort of sets the boundaries for the process and I think really helpful to set a tone. Whilst the mediator is getting the agreement to mediate signed, often they will let parties know, sort of forewarn everybody, that in a few minutes, each party will have the opportunity to explain what are the issues that need to be resolved in the mediation, what are the questions that need to be answered. So if you listen to the last podcast, you will have your list of issues and goals ready before your joint session. You can bring those out. And when appropriate, share them with the mediator. So often people will want to talk about the, say, the five or six issues on their list and will have no interest at all in talking about any of the issues on the other person's list. So it's not unusual that there are some issues which both parties agree need to be resolved and some issues which only one party thinks need to be resolved. In mediation, the reality is we need to talk about everything because You can imagine that if you have an issue which you think needs to be resolved in the mediation and the other person refuses to even talk about it, the chances of getting an agreement, getting anything resolved, are pretty low because you're going to feel that you haven't been respected, that you haven't been heard, that this mediation is just for the other person. So even if it's a topic that is um, difficult to talk about or one person is worried is gonna be inflammatory, if it's an issue that needs to be resolved, we need to put it up on the agenda. So once each party has shared from their perspective the issues that need to be resolved, the mediator will use all of the information that's been raised to form an agenda. It's a single agenda for the mediation and it will go up on whatever device or whiteboard that the mediator is using. I'm kind of old fashioned, so I'm still handwriting it on my whiteboard. And then the next step is for parties to prioritise. So we'll work through each party picking the next item in priority, not because some things are more important, but sometimes there is a natural order to how we should talk about things. It's not unusual, I find, that parties will start with talking about children's arrangements and then move on to talking about finances. Often it's because people don't tend to need more information about their children they tend to have a good sense of their children then I can obviously bring in information as a mediator from research but generally that's what the starting point is that we talk about children's arrangements first and then finances it's not always the way but I would say it's 99% of the time how we do it the next thing is also to express what your goals priorities or objectives are and again I will put those up on the whiteboard. Some, again, will be shared and some will be individual. But as I mentioned in the last podcast, really important for me to know that if this mediation is a little yacht, that we are steering in the right direction, that we haven't lost sight of the goals that both parties have. Once those all go up on the board, we just start going through the agenda items one by one. And this is where it can feel very different, I think. So sometimes when I see people in intake, they'll say, oh, but the other person negotiates all the time for their job. They're going to be really good at mediation. And I'm worried that I will not have the same skills. And I think that is a legitimate concern. But I guess what I would say is often people who do negotiate for a living, particularly if they are negotiating commercial contracts, their approach is quite different to how we negotiate mediation. So I'll do another podcast, I think, on the difference between what we do in mediation, which is trying to understand why people want things, not just what do they want, but why do they want them, which is called interest-based negotiation, and just talking about what you want, which is what a lot of people do in the commercial world, which is what we call distributive. So I'll talk about that in another podcast, but suffice to say, if you are a hard-nosed commercial negotiator you're probably going to find mediation quite slow as a process because one of the big differences is that in mediation, we really believe in exploring and understanding before we come up with any options. So often business people want to come in and say, well, this is my bottom line. And as a mediator, my job is always to slow them down and say, that's great that you have some clarity, but first let's just understand the information that is available in relation to each of these agenda items. And then we can talk about what some of the options might look like. So it's a very different process. So if people are coming into me and saying they're concerned about the other person has so much more experience, I try and explain that actually the chances of them having experienced this type of negotiation are, un- are quite unlikely, <laughs> that actually, generally, most people are on the same footing, i.e., everybody is a beginner at using this structure. So coming prepared with your issues and goals, really important. As I said last time, sometimes people will say things to me in intake and often it is around, I want to talk about reconciliation. And by the time we come to the joint session, they don't raise it. That actually, whether they've thought against it or something has happened, often it doesn't get raised. So if you've said to the mediator at intake, this is something I want to talk about and you don't raise it, please, I guess, feel assured That if um, I'm in the room as your mediator, I'm not going to be raising anything that you raised privately. So as I said, generally people, if they have children, will start talking about children's issues. If people are coming to talk about finances, and maybe that's because they've resolved their children's issues or they don't have children, it's really helpful to have a conversation at intake around disclosure. So what type of information is available? What type of information do both parties want? Because often what we're doing at mediation is setting homework. So if people are divorcing in Hong Kong and they have started a court process, it's not unusual that they have already prepared what we call in Hong Kong a Form E for financial disclosure. And whilst the Form E is incredibly tedious, I have to say, and I think people find it really difficult to complete and to... Get their heads around it's incredibly useful in mediation. So, even if people aren't in the court process already, we often use the for me structure to ensure that we have all of the information. The for me also talks about supporting documentation, and again, that's a conversation we can have in the mediation. Sometimes, when I work with people, they say, We've done our for we've done the supporting documents, we maybe have some questions. And that's what we talk about in mediation. Sometimes people agree to do an informal for me. We use the structure and they'll send each other some supporting documents. Sometimes people agree just to use the for me structure and no supporting documents unless there are questions. And then I have families who have for many years maybe worked off a spreadsheet that everybody is really comfortable with. And we use the spreadsheet um, to discuss the finances, whether that's assets or expenses. So really important that everybody feels comfortable with the level of disclosure and that everybody feels like they have the information they need to make an informed decision, yeah? Because these are big decisions and if you have consented to an arrangement, it's very difficult to overturn that and later come back and say, oh, I didn't have all of the information I needed. So you need to make these decisions really carefully that if somebody is unwilling to disclose financial information or is resistant to explaining information to a, to the other party, for me, that's a concern that some requests can seem excessive. I've definitely seen requests for information that the other parties viewed as excessive, as intrusive, as rude even, um, But really important that everybody feels that they have the information because the reality is if people feel they haven't been given information or the information they've requested, people can turn from I don't trust you to you must be hiding something, even if there is nothing being hidden. So sometimes people say to me, I don't trust the other person. I don't think that they have disclosed everything they needed to disclose. And I guess what I would say is that is a very common reaction. To separation and divorce and it may be that in this case something is being hidden or it may not be but I think helpful to understand that a if you are using the for me in the court process this will be a sworn document so there are risks if you swear to a document as being true and it's not that perhaps your order can be overturned if there is subsequent evidence against your statement But also that most people just want to get this done Um, and often I've seen people make errors in their financial disclosure and it's simply just because people live messy lives that people don't often keep great records and they often forget things. So I can remember one mediation where we were talking about uh, retirement plans and pensions and the wife had been extremely suspicious of the husband and said, but you haven't put in uh, all of the bank accounts from 20 years ago when we lived in another country. We then got to the pension page and he said, but hold on a second, you you've got four pensions from the, the companies you worked at when we lived in the other country, which she had completely forgotten. So I think it was a good object lesson in everyone can make a mistake on me, for me, and in financial disclosure, but it's just Asking questions, that being open to asking and answering questions is really important. One thing I guess that is helpful to address is that sometimes people want to come to the joint session with somebody else. Either they want to be accompanied by their solicitor or they would like to bring somebody for emotional support. So I am always happy to welcome somebody to the mediation, provided they agree to abide by the confidentiality and the ground rules in the room that the only issue is that the other party must consent. So nobody can attend the mediation without both parties and the mediator consenting. That in my opinion, it is really helpful having solicitors attend. So I know that not everybody has that view, but as a solicitor myself, um, I think it is really helpful that often they can bring a perspective, that it can be a really helpful way of understanding what advice a party is receiving, of challenging that advice, of having a conversation about maybe something that's a little bit complicated. So sometimes it can be really helpful for a party to have their solicitor in the room to explain a proposal or to ask questions for more information if that's challenging. It can also be really helpful, I think, just to have the solicitors in the room if what we're looking at is maybe doing something a little creative, that we might need some assistance with structuring something that's a little bit different, that if they're not in the room, it can make it slower. Obviously, I, like every family mediator, have had situations where the solicitors haven't behaved in the room. They've been aggressive. They've been unhelpful. They've been unconstructive. But from my perspective, that's just part of mediation management. And that means it's incumbent on me as the family mediator to redirect that solicitor into behavior that is appropriate in the room. In terms of having a support person, so an emotional support person, again, I'm happy to have somebody come. Sometimes the other person, they must consent, but sometimes they can be resistant because they're worried that the emotional support person won't just be there to emotionally support the party they're coming with, but will actually be abusive, will breach confidentiality, um, will make the situation harder. I have to say, thinking back, I can only think of people who have come with an emotional support person where that person has A, behaved properly, i.e. kept quiet, um, only spoke when they were spoken to, um, but also that it has helped the party who brought them to feel more comfortable. One of the challenges is in mediation that if we meet privately, so just the two parties and myself, that often there are tribes behind them who will have views about what they should be getting in the mediation or what they should ask for in the mediation. And those views may be completely ridiculous, to be perfectly honest. Uh, they may be completely unrealistic. They may set expectations at levels which can never be met. If they're in the room, there is a chance to manage those expectations and also to understand the pressures that the other party is under. So sometimes, you know, I can think of a mediation last summer where the party had brought her current partner who had some very ambitious Ideas about what the financial settlement could look like. In fact, based on the advice from her lawyer, those were unrealistic. But he was very aggressive, and she felt like she had to keep pushing to achieve these goals, even though her lawyer had said this is not realistic. So, having the person not at the mediation would have meant that any agreement we had in the room, high likelihood that as soon as she goes back home, that the new partner is going to undo that agreement. Much better to have the new partner in the room to hear what is actually possible, what is on the table in the mediation and also to manage their expectations, to actually be there, to work with them, maybe in a separate session with the party to actually give them the chance to say what they think, to have the lawyer express their view again and to provide the party with support to make their decision So I think from my perspective, helpful to have that emotional support person in the room. And generally I try and encourage people to agree if that's been requested. In terms of managing yourself in the joint session, I think there are a couple of things that people can do. One is to use separate sessions. So I've been talking about the joint session when everybody is around the table. A separate session, or in the US we'd call it a caucus is when you meet with the mediator privately. So you break, you go into a separate room, and you and the mediator can have a private conversation. That can be really helpful. So either because there's something that you really need to say to them privately, or because you need a break, or because maybe you want to put a proposal on the table but you want some time and some advice about how to do that in a way that is likely to get accepted, that it can be really helpful strategically to have that separate meeting. The other thing I would say that I think people don't use enough is the break. That this is not, mediations are not under exam conditions. Yeah. You can leave the room, you can go to the loo, you can go and get a coffee. From my perspective, incredibly positive for people to do that, that it's really helpful because what we know about our emotional state is that physical movement is one of the easiest ways to regulate ourselves emotionally. So if you get up, walk outside, go get a coffee, the chances are that you will have calmed down significantly, that you give yourself a chance to refocus and to stay calm. So asking for breaks, really important. Um, and I, I would kind of say that I think people don't do it enough. The other thing that I would suggest that you do before you come to your joint session to make sure that you get the best out of it is to get some support that there are a lot of counselors, coaches who can provide you with tools to use during the mediation, maybe before, maybe after, to help you to calm down. So recently I did a podcast episode with Dr. Monica Borschel, and we talked about how can you stay calm in the mediation? How can you make sure you don't lose control? There is a lot of help out there. And so I always Try and suggest to people that that is something that they can do to help them prepare to come to the joint session, to actually get some CBT, get some tools, so that in the room they can stay focused, they can stay calm. The other thing I would say is make sure that if you're coming to the mediation, you have had a chance to get some legal advice, not necessarily hours of legal advice, but just to understand what your rights are in relation to the circumstances that you're in that if you are going to ask solicitors for you know what should i be looking to achieve in the mediation always ask what happens for me on a good day in court i.e. the judge likes my arguments i'm credible my lawyers are well prepared the other person does a terrible job their barrister does a terrible job and what happens for me on a bad day in court. What happens if the judge doesn't like what I'm saying? What happens if the judge doesn't find me credible? What happens if the other person is really convincing and their cases are agreed with by the judge? So what does that look like? So really important to get a sense of good day, bad day. And the reason is that if we just ask solicitors, oh, what should I get? that is the answer that you will get. What do they think you should get? And that is unlikely, very unlikely, I have to say, to be the same as what the other person is being told. But if you can get a range and the other person has a range, hopefully those ranges will overlap somewhere. And that is the zone within which we can work. So I would always say, get some legal advice before you come so that you feel prepared to negotiate, but also recognize that you need to get good day, bad day. The other thing I would say is if your solicitor can't be present, just make sure that they are available by phone if you need them. Not everybody does, but definitely I think for a lot of clients, it's helpful to know as a backstop that they can speak with their solicitors during the mediation just to get some help or to get some perspective. At the end of the joint session, depending on where you get to, Say for example, we have some agreements, we have some proposals, and maybe there's some homework, I will always prepare a written summary, which means that parties have something they can take away with them and review, that they have a document they can show their lawyers to get advice on, and that we kind of have a starting point for the next session. If we've done maybe 80% of the work to finalizing either children's arrangements or financial arrangements, then I will prepare a draft without prejudice agreement. Again, people have time to take that away, to review it, to show it to their lawyers, to get legal advice. But it means that we have a starting point, again, for the next session that's really helpful. So if you're not getting a written summary at the end of a joint session from your mediator, it's definitely something that you can ask for. I think for most parties, it's really helpful because this is not just an ordinary negotiation where you might be able to hold all the details in your head, this is something for most people that is very emotional. And so really difficult for people to focus on the numbers and the facts and proposals when everything is spinning around. So from my perspective, I think critical that parties have a written summary or a draft agreement to take away with them. And really important that you have something that you can discuss to help your lawyer to get some advice about what's happening. Okay, so next week, I'm going to talk about what you need to know about making an offer. So if you're in the joint session, and you're thinking, I'm ready to put an offer on the table, what does that look like? Okay, so take care, and I'll speak to you next week. Welcome to Map the Maze. I wanted to share the ideas and thoughts in the podcast that you're about to listen to with a wider audience. But please know that nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal, financial, or mental health advice. It is really important that you seek independent, professional advice to help you with your situation and your circumstances. Knowledge is power. So let's get to it.